I'm Pastor Paul, so glad you were here this morning, and I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. Now, if you are new to Four Oaks, let me just say this, you need to know that the the regulars here at Four Oaks uh, come to church expecting not only to hear faithful preaching of God's Word, but you may not know that the people of Four Oaks come every morning expecting to hear faithful, honest, biblical movie reviews, right? Which I am more than happy to provide this morning. So, so it was 36 years ago today that um, as a high school senior, I went and saw the movie Top Gun in the theater, right? So Susan and I decided a couple weeks ago to embark on a little 1980s nostalgia tour by going to see Top Gun 2 Maverick. And, and let me just say, um, it was one of those rare sequels, no joke, that was better than the original, all right? And if you don't believe that, may God show you the error of your ways, right? Now, now Top Gun 2 used a particular storytelling technique to great effect, um, and in Latin, it's called in medias res, right? In medias res, impress your friends at dinner next weekend. It, it literally means to drop into the middle of things, okay? So, so as a storytelling technique, you sort of drop your viewers or hearers right into the middle of the action, right into the middle of the story. Um, no one really knows what's going on, and you spend the rest of the movie or the story sort of backfilling all the plot details and plot lines. And so, so it is with Top Gun and Tom Cruise and gang. It was very enjoyable as a standalone film, right? But much more meaningful if you know the backstory. And so we've been in sort of a in medias res situation from a storytelling perspective over this past year as we have been in Romans. See, we've gotten to Romans 9 and 10, and Paul has sort of dropped us right into the middle of the biblical action. He, he, he starts talking about the Jews, God's Old Testament covenant people, and he's, he's addressing this question Paul, why have the Jewish people rejected their own Messiah? Why, why is it all Gentiles in the church, but, but very few Jews? Is this, is this, have the promises of God failed? Has the word of God failed? And Paul's been addressing that issue. But what we thought we would do this summer is to do sort of an immediate rest situation to do a story or to do a sermon series called The Story of Israel. And this is where we want to sort of go back to the Old Testament, and we want to begin to fill in the plot lines. We want to to highlight the plot points. What What is the history and story of God's Old Testament people? How is it that we've come to this point? How is it that that a people who were given all the promises and advantages and blessings of the covenant could somehow, in the end, pursue a righteousness not by faith, but by works. How could this happen? And of course, we're, we're wanting to see ourselves in this story, right? Because we are the privileged. We are the spiritually resourced. We have every advantage, spiritual advantage, known to mankind, both in freedom of worship, both in resources, um, legacy, um, people all around us. And so, so we're, we're taking a deep dive into the story of Israel. So let me just tell you where we've been so far these past couple of weeks. We started in Genesis 12, and we said, you know what? The church did not begin at Pentecost. 
The church did not begin in Acts 1. The church actually began in Genesis chapter 12. This is where God called Abraham. Remember him? Rank, pagan, moon dancing, moon walking, I guess. Anyway, Abraham, there's a little 80s throwback there for you. And we see that Abraham is sovereignly called by God. God saves him, plucks him out of this land of idolatry, and he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We're going to start with one man and one family and then one nation and then one world. And as Pastor Joe led us into God's word last week, we saw that it is now 400 years later, and this one man, Abraham and his clan, have grown to be two million people. But they find themselves, by a series of providential events, slaves in Egypt. And so what did we learn last week? That God raised up Moses, right, to lead them out of Egypt, to lead them through the Red Sea into the brink of the promised land, to the place, Canaan, that was to be their new home. And their new home, right, this was the place that the Israelites were going to gather. This was where they were going to worship. This is where they were going to, to live out God's rule and reign in their lives. And that's where we left off the story last time. And so we pick it up here in Joshua chapter 5, but a couple of things have changed. Number one, Moses is gone, right? He's, he's, he's seen the promised land, did not get to enter the promised land, but he's passed the torch of spiritual leadership to Joshua. And here, the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, are, are at the banks of the Jordan, and they're ready to cross. They're ready to assume um, their promised land as sort of the staging ground, the launching off point by which they are to grow as a covenant people of God and to end up blessing all the nations of the world, except there is a problem as they get ready to enter the promised land. And the, prom and the problem is simply this, somebody is already there. So what is God going to do, and what does he want to teach us by what he teaches the Israelites? So this is a little longer passage this morning. I'm not going to invite you to stand. If you want to stand, you can. No, don't. don't. Just don't. It'll be really awkward if you're the only one standing. But I'm going to read the passage. It's clearly one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, you undoubtedly have heard about this story somewhere in some time. Joshua and the battle of Jericho. But as we're going to see, it wasn't really a battle. All right, we're going to begin, though, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. We're going to end through, uh, read through the end of chapter 6. And so let's do that together. Hear God's word. Now, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do it for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. Now on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. 
And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Father, um, maybe for some of us who are not even that familiar with the Bible, maybe we are very familiar with this passage. A strange passage. A culturally offensive passage. Lord, a, a, a passage, let's be honest, we, we don't entirely know what to do with. But Lord, show us that this passage and what it reveals is nothing less than your glory and your holiness and your grace to your people. So, Father, we ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, three, three phrases, three words, three, three parts, movements to this sermon. So, first of all, we're going to talk about the captain. We see there in, in, in chapter 5. We're going to talk about the conquest itself. And then finally, the covenant. So the captain, the conquest, the, ca- the covenant. Let's look at, back at verse 13 under the captain. It tells us in verse 13, it seems that what, what, what's being described here is Joshua going out into the land and surveying the landscape, right? Remember, they're up on this ridge or mountains. They're entering the promised land. Jericho is sort of laid out before them. Um, this is their first battle. They, they've been told to, to take the city, but they have never taken a city by siege, right? They, they, that's a different sort of warfare. And so Joshua's out there scoping it out. And as he's scoping it out, he sees a man. And this is not just any man. This is a man in full battle dress, he is in full battle guard. I mean, this is gladiator, right? This is the man with the drawn sword. And Joshua does what is reasonable and right. When it says it went up to him, it means he confronts him. And he asks what obviously is a very reasonable question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? In the hills of Tennessee, the way we say this, are you for us or against us? Okay, that's how we say that, right? Are you for us or are you for them? And this person gives just the classic response, no, right? We kind of shake our head a second. It's, it's actually the same kind of response, parents, you give when your kids ask you who your favorite child is, right? Me or him? And what do you say if you're a good parent? Both, right? Both. All of the above. All of God's children. Today at lunch, you ought to try No, none, neither. I dislike all of you the same. Just kind of see how that goes. Well, this person answers no, okay? Or or in other words, neither. That's essentially what he's saying. Are you for us? Are you for them? I'm not for either of you. Now, for us to understand this response, I think it will be helpful to know who this man is, okay? Now, in every case in the Bible, and some say an angel, Let me tell you why I don't think it's an angel. Every time in the Bible an angel appears, what do people do? They fall down, right? They hug the ground. They bow down in worship. And in every case without fail, what does that angel tell that person? Get up, okay? 
don't, I'm, I'm not God, don't worship me. Isn't it interesting? Not here. Not here. Joshua falls down, he's prostrate, he worships, and he is not corrected. He is not corrected. Instead, the captain gives Joshua a command. He says, take off your shoes, Joshua. This is holy ground. Now, does that kind of sound familiar if you're at all acquainted with the Bible? If you're an Israelite, what would you have thought of? If you were Joshua, what would you have thought of, right? You would have thought immediately of Moses and the burning bush, where God himself, Yahweh, I am that I am, appears to Moses in all of, his, in all of God's righteousness, holiness, and purity, and he says, Moses, take off your shoes. And this marks the call of Moses into ministry. This is being replayed out in the life of Joshua. I, I, think, it's, I think it's very clear, right, that this Lord, this captain, is other than, none other than the pre-incarnate son of God. We, we, we see theophanies like this all throughout the Old Testament. Theophany it just means an appearing of the Lord in human form. So I, we see that when the visitors come to, to, to talk with Abraham. We see this when, when God wrestles with Jacob. I think we are witnessing it here. Now, that's important. It's important that we, that we understand who is speaking. Because in his answer, the Lord is giving Joshua a radical reorientation to the way he thinks and views life. Okay? You see, Joshua has a goal. Joshua has a task, right? He's on a mission. He has a battle to fulfill. He's got a mission to accomplish. And what he's essentially asking this, well, he doesn't know at the time, this, this soldier is, are you going to help me get there? Are, are you on my side? Right? That, that, that's what he's asking. And what does the Lord answer in essence? What is his response? The question, Joshua, is not whether or not I'm on your side. The question is, are you on mine? Now, this is a crucial, crucial distinction to understand between what we call man-centered religion and then the biblical gospel, biblical Christianity. See, see man-centered religion or spirituality says something like this. You know, Pastor Paul, I've kind of already figured out what I'm doing in life, right? I kind of know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to do. Um, I'm, 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 I know how I'm going to do it. What I really need is just a little blessing from the Lord, right? A little spiritual pixie dust, a little Jesus juice, just a little something to help me get to where I think I need to go all along. God's sort of here to help me get to where I think I need to be and to do what I want to do. And it raises an issue for us, right? As we are sitting in the place of Joshua, asking the Lord, hey, Lord, you, you with me here? The question is, are, are we aligning our lives, our values, our priorities with God's? Or do we evoke God's name and likeness and attach them to our agenda? You know, God, I've already decided the contours of my life, my money, my hobbies, my travel, my stuff, my priorities, my value. 
I'm just asking that you would just sort of anoint it. See, that's man-centered religion. Biblical Christianity is wrapped up in Joshua's response. What does Joshua say? What does the Lord say to his servant? In other words, here I am, God. I belong to you. You are my king. You are my captain. You are my commander. I go where you want me to go. I do what you want me to do. What does, remember what does Samuel say when God calls him? Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Folks, as, as a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes we can make things very complex in our lives. But sometimes it's as simple as saying, God, am I listening to you? Folks, are you listening? If you claim the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and that you belong to him, you were a follower of him, is Jesus your co-pilot? Is he your buddy? Is he your, is he your helper? Now understand there's, there's aspects of God's character that are, that, that are consistent with all those things, but that's not fundamentally who God is. God is our captain. God is our commander. He's not our mascot. He's not our lucky charm. He's not our magic potion. We don't whistle to him to come do our bidding and then get angry with him when he doesn't do it, right? So what does this mean for how we're to order our lives? Let's go back at the text. And I love this. Listen to what the Lord says to Joshua. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And listen, Joshua did so. See, what's the significance of this? See, as, as we're prayerfully considering how to order our lives as God's people under his righteous and gracious rule, our guiding principle and value always has to be the holiness of Christ, the righteousness of God. See, see the commander is saying, Joshua, let me orient you to, to who I am and to what is real and to the greatest reality in all of the universe. I am that I am. I am holy. I am righteous. I am other. And in this, I think, the Lord is giving to Joshua and to us an overarching framework, a guiding principle for which we are all to think about our lives. Is, is this particular decision, is this particular priority, is this particular value, is this sort of like my game, my gig, and I'm just kind of trying to get God to go along with me, or is this about God's holiness? Is this about God's righteousness? Is this about God's glory? Is God being lifted up in my life, in my relationships, in my parenting, in my marriage, in my pocketbook, in my hobbies, in my decision-making? God is reorienting Joshua to true reality. And I think he re wants to reorient our hearts as well. And so this is what we find with the captain. 
Now let's get into the meat of the, the, the text under the conquest, all right? Look at verse 6-1. It says that Jericho was shut up literally within and without. Now just a couple of historical archaeological facts. Um, the actual city was not that large, okay? It was maybe a few thousand people, maybe a dozen acres or so. So cities in that time were very small, but make no mistake, it was undoubtedly impregnable, right? Archaeological ruins show this. And by the way, don't have time. This is a whole other sermon or seminar. Uh, affirm the historical account of Joshua chapter 6 in every way. But archaeology shows us that there was probably multiple walls in a tiered sort of format. And the, and the, and the city was up on this hill. And not only were there walls high, but they were very wide. There was a natural spring that fed the city on the inside, and they undoubtedly had store, in fact, archaeological ruins show us that they had stores and stores of food. What does all that mean? It means they could have waited this out a long, long time, right? It means that this was a long siege. This wasn't days, this wasn't weeks, this was months, years. You just have to look at history and how sometimes impregnable castles oftentimes would stand um, unconquered for, for, for years, right? Because they were so difficult to attack and to get into. This is sort of the picture of, that we're being provided here in Joshua 6 when it says they were shut up and shut in. Now, here's what's interesting. Not only does God say, we're going in, right? We're going into the city. He gives them an explicit set of instructions that, let's be quite honest, all right, um, they make no sense militarily, right? Patton did not come up with this, right? Grant did not come up with this. The Chinese book on the art of war, that, you would not find this in there, right? In other words, just march in the wide open. Just go for it, right? And march in kind of range of the city walls there. And I mean, there's no nightly siege, there's no catapults, there's no underground tunnels. Just an ark, a religious symbol, and a bunch of trumpets, right? And march around once on the first six, six days, and march around seven times on the seventh day, and blow the trumpets and shout, okay? So, so on, the, on the surface of things, let's be honest, like, this does not seem to make a lot of military sense, and it didn't. It didn't. But nonetheless, this is what the people of Israel did. They marched, they shouted, and of course it tells us that the walls collapsed. They didn't collapse in. They didn't collapse out. They literally fell down. And in fact, archaeological records show us, in fact, this is exactly what happened. And the people... The Israelites rushed in. They, they plundered, they burned, they conquered. And now, and you can look at a map to see this, they are strategically positioned to enter into and take possession of the rest of the promised land. Now, you might have heard, you heard me say at the beginning of the sermon, a lot of times we, we, we call this the Battle of Jericho. So when our kids were little, they used to watch these, these DVDs of, called the Cedarmont Kids, okay? I don't want to subject anybody in here to it. But nonetheless, it's basically, I, I was going to say something that was not kind, but I was not going to say that, okay? But they would sing this song 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 and the walls came tumbling down. Did anybody hear, anybody remember this song? Okay, I requested it this morning from Joe Haverlock, and he refused, okay, which, which is a big problem. That's, that's not what happened. They did not fight a battle, and the walls fell down, right? God collapsed the walls, and they walked into the end zone, right? The path had been totally clear. There, the playing field had been wiped clean. And in doing so, there's a lot we can get from this. I'm going to say a couple things. One of the things that God is wanting to make very clear to the Israelites, and it's just a great reminder for us, right? God wanted to leave no doubt in their minds about whose victory this was. He wanted to leave no doubt. And I think the ark being there was a poignant reminder of, of this. What was the Ark of the Covenant? What was it to symbolize? It was to symbolize the very presence of God. You didn't get near the Ark. You didn't touch the Ark. You did not handle the Ark in a way that would dishonor God. It was to be a, a, an embodiment. It was to be contained in the Holy of Holies, which the priests would only see one time a year, and it was, to, it was a representation of the very holiness and presence of God. And as those Israelites carried that ark, which to them meant God is with us, God is in the midst of us, the lesson would not have been lost on them as the walls came tumbling down, right? That this victory belongs to God. They would have been reminded what Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Because we have to remember that, and this, and this is so hard in the day and age, where we have such a premium on efficiency and control and outcomes and, and, and putting things into one side of the equation and expecting X to come out on the other side, that ultimately all of that is just an illusion. You know that, right? You, you, you know that ultimately, apart from the very presence of God and the power of his spirit in your life and in my life, we can do nothing. This explodes, right, all of, the, all of the misguided theological notions. And we don't say it this way, but we, we act this way sometimes. If we just follow the right formula, right, if we just follow the right formula for our health or for our children or for our job or for our marriage or for our money, life is going to turn out in a particular way. And oftentimes, God, by his grace, shows us the futility of that thinking. God, by his grace, reminds us, oh, no, 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 child of mine. No, 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 no. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I'm more interested in promoting my glory and honor and righteousness and grace and my presence in your life than I am in giving you a particular outcome. And to be able to predict a, a particular thing, 
So all these things, I think, are, are lessons that we, that we draw from this conquest. Now, let, let me address one theological, before we leave this point, let me address briefly one theological elephant in the room, so to speak, under this point. And I'm sure you can anticipate what it might be. See, the question that presses itself forward in a passage like this, right, is, is something akin to this question. If God is good, Pastor Paul, how, does he, how can he command killing? And, and not just killing of, of seemingly evil picket people, but everyone in this city, men, women, children, animals, the whole kitten caboodle. And guys, that, that's not an unimportant question. It's a theological apologetic issue that many stumble over, right? These sorts of concerns are oftentimes the stated reasons for saying things like, I just can't trust the Bible, or this is a primitive ancient relic of a, of a distant past, or, or at the heart of the deconstruction movement, I can't worship a God like that, right? You, there, there's, there's, there's many different versions or responses to this. It can also lead people sometimes on the progressive side to sort of Thomas Jefferson their Bible. You know what I'm talking about? So, so Thomas Jefferson looked at his Bible and said, there's some things in here I really don't like. And um, I'm going to just, instead of like wrestling with them and trying to bring myself under them, I'm just going to cut those out, right? And I guess you have like a Bible that looks like a Jenga puzzle or something, right? But that, that, that's what he did. Functionally, let's be honest, that's what we are often tempted to do. We, 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 it, it leads us to, to gravitate to more socially palpable cultural values like love or peace or forgiveness, but it can quickly, right, lead us to jettison harder, culturally at least, harder subjects like wrath and judgment and punishment and hell. But if we're not careful, what we do, we end up eviscerating the gospel, right? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how, how, are, we to, how are we to think about this? Let me just say a couple of things, um, and then maybe this week I'll post something um, on, on the website or on the church blog that just kind of directs us to some more resources, okay, in this area, if you want to really take a deep dive, because there's all kind of great things. Well, let me just simply say this, guys. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God was raising up a theocracy. And this was to be a people who were holy in his sight, who lived under a civil ceremonial law. Um, and when it came time for them to come into the promised land and to displace the nations that were there, while they were doing something dreadful, please understand this, they were never doing something unjust. Remember that Abraham, God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, don't, don't mess with the Canaanites, okay? Don't mess with the Amorites. Their, their, their iniquity has not been filled up yet. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stand down right now, Abraham. I, I, I want the people of Canaan and, and the Amorites, I, I, I want them to repent. And so I'm going to stay my hand. But now it is 400 years later. Okay? They know the exploits of Yahweh. They know the exploits of God. Their hearts are still hardened. And God says, justly, as his righteous punishment, I'm going to wipe away all sin and iniquity 
in that place. And by the way, guys, that's not just an Old Testament teaching. That's a New Testament teaching. If you read Revelation chapter 18, you understand that what happens at the wall of Jericho is a precursor to what will happen at the end of time. When God will judge the unrighteous and those who are hidden in Christ, he will graciously love and protect. Well, let me say this now. What does this mean for us now? Under the new covenant in Christ, understand something. Okay, please understand something. We are explicitly told it is not our job to engage in holy war, to take up physical arms, to eradicate the spiritual enemies of God. We, can, we see this repeatedly all over the New Testament, right? So Peter and Malchus, Peter takes out the sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, and what does Jesus say? What are you doing, Peter? My kingdom is not of this world. Paul explicitly tells us in Ephesians 5 that our that our weapons of war are entirely spiritual in nature. Take up the sword of the what? The spirit, right? Why, why, why is there sort of a reprieve now under the new covenant that we are not called to do the things that the Old Testament people of God were called to do? It's because we are here to proclaim jubilee. We are here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We are here to proclaim the gospel. We are here to say God is staying his hand. God is not bringing his righteous judgment upon us like we deserve. And so turn to Christ. Hide yourself in Christ. Turn to him through faith and repentance. See, the real issue is not why everyone in the city of Jericho was killed. The real question is, why were any spared? And of course, that brings us to our last point, where we're going to look at Rahab and the covenant. Look at verse 17. Here was the instructions. This is a reminder. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now listen, only Rahab the prostitute... And all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Now, if you recall back in Joshua chapter 2, if you've, if you've read this before, Rahab enters the Israelite story in a very powerful way. So two, two Israelite spies go into Jericho. They spy out the land. They sneak into the city. But somehow the authorities are notified and are coming after them to kill them. And so they, be, so they take refuge with Rahab. Now, we don't know why they took refuge with her. Maybe because they were thinking, this is the one place in the city the authorities would not look for us, right? Maybe it's hard to find. We, we, we don't fully know. But we know that God providentially um, guided them there and that they made a covenant with, with Rahab. Okay, And here was the covenant. Listen to Joshua chapter 2, or the agreement. For the Lord God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, this is in chapter 2. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, she's hidden them, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. 
If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, let's understand what's, what's happening here, right? This is not a situation where Rahab was good, the rest of the people in Jericho were bad, God saves Rahab, okay? That, that's, that's not the point of this. In fact, I love it. Well, that's a strong word. Oh, well. they, keep, they keep referring to her as not just Rahab, but what? Rahab the what? Prostitute, right? Hey, there's no running from that label. In fact, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. By faith, Rahab the what? Prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In other words, the point of Rahab's activity is that this is a demonstration of faith. Rahab and her family were saved by faith. Notice, okay, at, at, back in chapter 2, when she acknowledges, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, we've heard about God, and we've seen the promises of God and the faithfulness of God, and we want to align ourselves with God. I want to align myself and my family under God's favor, God's direction. I don't want to go off on my own. I don't want to just have a little bit of, little bit of God here. I want to orient my life under him. And that's what we learn from this, that while Rahab hid the spies as a sign of her faith and trust in God, what did God do? He hid Rahab in him. And guys, it is the gospel according to Rahab. I, again, I just go back to this. I, I think it is peculiar, right? That every time we see Rahab's name, we see Rahab the prostitute. It's, it's just, I think, a reminder to us as we get into this story that what we are meant to see here is, yes, absolutely the justice and righteousness of God poured out on people who were obstinate and rebellious and full of sin. But it's just as much to remind us of the gospel and the grace of God, that even in the midst of this, God comes around Rahab and her family, and he shields them and protects them, not just physically, although that, but most importantly, spiritually. So much so that 1,500 years later, as the writer of Hebrews is writing that great chapter of the Hall of Faith, there is Rahab. One more thing about Rahab, and then we'll be done. Isn't it interesting that one of the places we find Rahab is where? In the genealogy of whom? Jesus. And I think this is just a glorious reminder that Rahab, a pagan, Gentile, outside the faith, prostitute, through her actions, a family was saved. But through the actions of her Savior, Jesus Christ, a world is saved. See, this is, this is 
what it means to read the Old Testament in light of the new. See, there, there's, there, there's a lot more to this story than simply be strong and courageous. And, and, and if you trust God, you, you'll win every time and the, and the walls of your life will come tumbling down. And understand, church, that I mean, those are faithful applications, but that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is that God has revealed himself mighty and holy and righteous, but also gracious and loving and forgiving all through the covenant, the covenant that he has made with us through Jesus Christ. Who, who are you in the story? Who are you in the story? Guys, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we all can be Rahab. To remember that God has made his covenant with us. He's renewed that with us in Jesus Christ. We place our hope and our faith and our trust in him. Because as we get ready to come to the, to the table this morning, let me, let me give us just a fresh way to think about what we do when we come to the table. There's many things the Lord's table symbolizes for us. There, there's many layers of theological meaning. But one of the things that we have to remember is that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he said, this bread and wine, this is a symbol of the what? New what? Covenant in my blood. I'm, this, this, I'm entering into this gracious partnership with you where you've hidden yourself in me and I've loved you and poured my grace out upon you. Because when we come to the table every Sunday, this is part of our covenant renewal before God. This is, this, is, this is a reminder to us as we come that Jesus is my captain and that he broke his body for me. He shed his blood for me. He gave his life for me, and now I am entrusting my life to him.